You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Revelation chapter 15 and chapter 16 from the English Standard Version ESV. Chapter 15 Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of heaven and from his power, And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Chapter 16 Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrews is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plagues of the hail, because the plague was so severe. At this point in our series on Revelation, we have endured 14 chapters of complicated and confusing scenes. We've watched Christians get killed and be called into suffering like their master Jesus was, a sacrificial lamb slain on behalf of both his friends and his enemies. The life of the Christian in the book of Revelation is in chaos, and yet John, the author of this book, encourages his brothers and sisters to stay strong, stay steadfast, for Satan is not winning when they go through suffering. Actually, John says the opposite is true. When Christians suffer, Satan is conquered. Amidst the chaos of plagues, martyrdom, and the overlapping themes of spiritual and governmental oppression, it almost seems like all is lost in the book of Revelation. But then in our most recent message, we caught a glimpse that this is not the case at all. For suddenly, Jesus, the Lamb, soaked not with the blood of his enemies, but soaked with his own blood, is spotted at Mount Zion, that is, Jerusalem, the place known throughout history as the mountain that God once made his physical home in when it came to the earth. In Revelation 14, Jesus, God in flesh, returns home to Mount Zion, and he hasn't come alone. Jesus is joined on Mount Zion by thousands of Christians who loudly sing a worship song no one on the earth has ever heard before, as the booming noise of waterfalls and thunder echo across the land. The beginning of the end has come, the final holy war of holy wars, fought by a lamb soaked in his own blood who uses his tongue as his weapon. It's the pronunciations of his judgments that he fights with. For just as Jesus was there in the beginning, creating the world with his words, so he is seen at the end, uncreating it with his words. 
And after he's done that, he will go on to create a new perfect earth with new perfect human beings that have imperishable, incorruptible, resurrected bodies, as Paul tells us. What we know of our planet with all of its evil and pain, all of its COVID-19, all of that will come to pass when Jesus hits the reset button. Then Christians will find themselves in the new Eden as God comes to dwell with us here on earth as it is in heaven. It is there that because of grace too incredible to truly comprehend, we will rule with Jesus as he extends to us his power and authority. But first, the holy war of holy wars must remove all that is wrong from the earth. And so the angels pour out plagues on the earth, not because God wants people to suffer, but because, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, pain is God's megaphone. Pain gets attention and draws people to God. We've all heard conversion stories of those who cried out to God when they were at rock bottom and he showed up. This is a tactic of redemption. God doesn't bring pain on us out of a desire for violence. And sometimes, if we're honest, our hearts are hardened enough that it takes a plague to actually bring about redemption. Of course, many of these plagues aren't even things that God does to people. Plenty of these plagues come about simply because the God who holds the world together lets go of holding it together, and it all begins to fall apart. Other times these plagues happen because the God who holds Satan back from hurting us lets go of the restraints on Satan for a time. It's as though Satan is pictured as a rabid animal who would attack anything and everything if he had a chance to. As odd as it seems, many of the plagues in Revelation could be pictured not as the presence of God, but the absence of God. And there is hope that the pain caused in that absence will push many to acknowledge Him and ask for salvation. The book of Revelation points out time and time again that as these plagues come, people don't repent, showing us just how hardened and darkened the world becomes at the end of all things. The eternal gospel is still there, being proclaimed throughout Revelation, not only in the sufferings of the martyrs, but by the angels themselves. And still, people choose hatred over love, dragons over lambs, Satan over Jesus. God has waited patiently for more to be saved as the world spirals into its own heart for darkness. For as long as there is a chance that people might be willing to receive his salvation, it seems he is willing to wait. The stall of Jesus' return is because of the loving character of God, not because of a character defect of God. Now in today's message, we reach Revelation 16, Armageddon. The place where Satan has rounded up an army of demons and humans alike to fight God. Perhaps he thinks he's getting the drop on God, but John knows better, for he calls it the great day of the Almighty. In other words, amidst the free will of human beings and spiritual beings, God has expected and predestined this day. It isn't Satan's battle, it's God's, and God will win. Now, you'd think that Satan would have learned by now that a created being can't usurp the Creator. The inferior cannot overthrow the superior. You'd think he'd get it because Ezekiel 28 tells us that he used to be a guardian cherub. In other words, before he rebelled against God, he used to spend every day in God's presence, guarding his holy space. He should know God well enough to understand that there's nothing he can do to take God's throne. 
But pride numbs us to reason. Ezekiel 28 goes on to tell us that Satan, the once perfect, wise, blameless, and beautiful, decided to choose unrighteousness, violence, sin, and pride over God. Isaiah 14 goes on to fill us in on what that pride led Satan to do. He decided to go from protecting God's throne as a guardian cherub to trying to steal God's throne, which would give him the ability to reign over the Mount of Assembly. But what is the Mount of Assembly? It's a place where God's divine counsel meets. The Bible as a whole shows God working with other spiritual beings he's created to get his work done and to make decisions. Not because he needs them to help, but because out of his love, he's chosen to co-labor with them. In the same way, he does not need our help, but he's chosen to create us and co-labor with us. At one point, Satan was a part of this divine council, this heavenly assembly that met on the Mount of Assembly. But apparently his mind was not on helping God, but becoming God. He wanted control over the mountain of God. He, he wanted control over the Mount of Assembly and the beings that assembled there. John tells us further about what Satan did in Revelation 12. Satan created an army out of a bunch of rebellious angels and they warred against God in heaven. Shocking no one, they failed to usurp God's throne and were kicked out of heaven to the earth. This is the same consequence both Ezekiel and Isaiah mention in their passages. The guardian cherub, who used to live in the heights of the heavens, was booted out to the lowest place of the earth. And not just the earth, but Sheol, the dwelling place of the dead, which is below the earth in ancient cosmology. The prideful one of the heavens had been humbled to the lowest point of Sheol. But Satan's pride continues to puff up even while here on the low places of the earth. Not only does he get humanity to choose his so-called wisdom in Eden over God's true wisdom, but he continues to be one of God's strongest contestants for worship throughout the Old Testament. He is, after all, identified by some later Jews as Beelzebul, a name derived from the term Baal-zebul, that is, Prince Baal one of the main false gods of the Old Testament that led God's people astray over and over and over again. Now, throughout ancient times, gods like Baal were always thought to be found on mountains. This is because the mountains were up in the sky, closer to where heaven meets the earth. Even God himself is seen showing up on mountains. Abraham goes up on a mountain to sacrifice Isaac. Moses meets God on Mount Sinai. And of course, God's presence once dwelt in Jerusalem, which was known to God's people as Mount Zion. These are just a few examples of the ancient expectation to find spiritual beings on mountains. Now, Baal had his own mountain known in Hebrew as Zephon, which is often translated in English simply as the north. But the Bible writers didn't see Zephon as Baal's space, but rather they saw it as God's space. For they often love to take all the gods of the world and insult them by exalting the one true God over them. So for example, Psalm 48 pictures Zephon, Baal's domain, as a place where Mount Zion is. In other words, they insulted Beelzebul slash Baal slash Satan by stealing Zephon from him and picturing it as God's dwelling place instead. 
Likewise, Isaiah 14 pictures God controlling the mountain of assembly, that is, the divine council, at Zephon, the place where the people of other nations thought Baal controlled the divine council. So again, Satan slash Baal gets snubbed as the Hebrews exalt God over him. They're telling the world that Baal isn't in charge. God is. Now you can imagine how insulted a powerful being like Satan with his insurmountable pride might feel about this. He's been provoked by the one true God who claims Satan's mountain as his own. And the book of Revelation shows us just how mad Satan is about everything. For he has assembled a new army consisting both of spiritual and physical beings who are opposed to God for the war of Armageddon. But what does Armageddon have to do with everything? What or where is Armageddon? The answer is found in the breadcrumbs John leaves for us in Revelation. As English-speaking people 2,000 years removed from his time, it's easy to miss some of the things John intends to say. In this case, we need to pay special attention to the fact that John tells his readers that Armageddon is a Hebrew word. Since he then goes on to write the Hebrew word Armageddon with Greek letters to his Greek readers, it means he's expecting them to transliterate it from Greek to Hebrew. That being said, most miss the breathing mark at the beginning of the Greek word John writes. Now, if I were to pay attention to this breathing mark and take a hard breath before I say this word out loud, it would sound like Mageddon. That is Harmageddon. There's no H in the Greek alphabet, so John is spelling this word in Greek in a way that would cause him to insert an H sound at the beginning of this word. Now, in Hebrew, har means mountain. So with this in mind, we're now expecting Megiddon to line up with the mountain we all know in the Hebrew scriptures. The question is, what mountain is it? Where is har Megiddon, Mount Megiddon? Since Hebrew has no vowels, it takes us a moment to find an answer. For in Hebrew, har Megiddon would simply be spelled H-R-M-G-D. We already know HR stands for Mount, but what about MGD? Some jump right into Megiddo in the Bible, but that doesn't make any sense. Not only does the Bible call Megiddo a plain, but the only hill there that people try to identify as a mountain today is actually the product of buildings being built on top of each other until it turns into raised land. I saw this for myself when I was in Greece. Every time they tried to dig into the ground to create a new subway system, they'd run into ruins of the old city. The city had simply been built on top of the old city, raising the new city in elevation. So, simply put, Mem Gimel Dalat, or for us, MGD, really doesn't line up with anything that makes sense in Hebrew, so are we on the wrong path to understand John's transliteration? No. Not if we substitute our Gimel, that is, our G, for a different Hebrew letter that also can make a G sound. It's called an Ayin, and it looks like a backwards apostrophe. If we were to spell out our new Hebrew word this way, Mim Ayin Dalit, it would be pronounced Har Moed. And that mountain actually does exist in the Bible. It's found in Isaiah 14, and in English we call it the Mount of Assembly. 
which is the exact place we saw Satan trying to take control of before he was kicked out of heaven in Isaiah 14. As we've already mentioned in our message a few weeks ago, we found Jesus and his new divine council of human and angelic beings standing on Mount Zion, ready for the final holy war that would put all things right. And now we find Satan and his new entourage of human beings and fallen angelic beings appear for the battle of the day of the Lord. Satan still wants God's throne, and he's just arrogant and stupid enough to have the audacity to still believe he can get it. He stands at the bottom of Har Moed, the Mount of Assembly, ready to ascend to the top and try once again to usurp the one and only God. He's filled with anger that God has claimed his sacred site of Zaphon as his own, and he still desires all the power and control over the divine council. But there, at the top of Mount Zion, of Har Moed, of the Mount of Assembly, stands a ghost. A man he could have sworn he once killed is up there, still alive, and ready to pronounce judgments with the sword of his mouth. On one hand, he looks like a corpse, bloodied with the blood of Satan's torturous cross all over him. But on the other hand, he looks perfect, immortal, incorruptible, and unable to be killed. And he stands there with the angels who once defeated Satan long ago, along with all the Christians Satan has murdered throughout the centuries. God is done waiting to bring about the end. He's done watching Satan kill his children. And so now God will bring about his vengeance because the day he has appointed has come and the world is finally beyond conviction. It's time for Satan's last stand. He goes to war with the Mount of Assembly, having already lost but unwilling to believe it. For in the end, martyrdom wins. The slain lamb wins. Resurrection wins. The new Eden wins. Heaven wins. The new divine council of Christians and angels who are faithful to God, they win and everything else has its place in the lake of fire, which is a part of Jesus' judgment for those who don't follow God. For to choose anything outside of the one true God is to choose the ways of the old world, which has its place with Satan. In the end, only God can save, and the good news is that he wants to save. Choose him, choose now. Find yourself on the right side of judgment when the armies rise up for a battle that Jesus doesn't even have to wield a real sword in, in order to win. He's already won even now. We must humble ourselves before the pride of Satan becomes our own pride. Jesus is calling all people to his side, even his enemies, even those currently in Satan's army. Will we answer?